It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, I just said start recording because this could be gold. What do you think? It might be gold. Fool's gold? (laughs) Pyrite, I think it's called. I'm not sure. You know, we've done so many episodes dedicated to Neil Peart and people who know Neil Peart, and with good reason. But today, we're going to be focusing on Mr. Getty Lee. Yes, specifically his solo album, My Favorite Headache. Yes, My Favorite Headache. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, you can find us at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro, that's Lex doing My Favorite Headache. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, nice of him, right? Yeah, it sounds great. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. And Jerry, I hope you have a great email to get us started. I do. This is going to be a controversial email. I can tell right away. Ooh, I like controversy. This is from Chris. What's up, Chris? He says, hi, guys. I love your podcast. I'm about your age, and Rush has been my favorite band from the moment I heard them jam at age 11. My neighbor was the same age, and his uncle was a roadie during the 81 Moving Pictures Tour. Oh, wow. When they played at the Kobo Arena in Detroit that year, Uncle Nick invited us to an early afternoon sound check before the show. It was incredible and a feeling I'll never forget. And, and so now this, that's not very controversial. No, I was going to say, that's not much controversy <laughs> there. Yeah, who knew? You didn't know where Uncle Nick was going to go, did you? <laughs> now he says, regarding the Necromancer, I have this theory that Neil wrote this song after watching Bruce Lee's 1973 film, Enter the Dragon during the fly-by-night tour, possibly in one of those cities referenced in Caress of Steel, which I guess is, he means the names of the cities where they're writing the albums. Right, right. Have you ever seen Enter the Dragon? I have not seen Enter the Dragon. Is it controversial? No, it's not controversial. Okay. It's a kung fu movie. I mean, it's it, I saw it a long time ago. I couldn't tell you anything about it. Anyway, he says, Prince Baitor represents Bruce Lee's character who frees a number of imprisoned slaves from the basement of a drug kingpin's dungeon. The kingpin is the inspiration for the necromancer's character, and the imprisoned slaves represent the three men of Willowdale. At the end of the movie, there's an epic martial arts fight in the dungeon filled with mirrors which represent the necromancer's prism. Even Prince Baitor is introduced in the song with Enter the Champion. Prince Baitor appears. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts or if anyone else in your orbit has brought up a similar theory Thanks, and keep the podcast coming, Chris. So I can answer both of those questions. Please. Actually, there's only one question. I don't think anyone has ever brought this up to us before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I In know. In our orbit uh, or anyone else's orbit anywhere, I don't think this has ever come up. Do we have an orbit? Well, I think he means listeners. He's okay. A very nice way to say <laughs> listeners. I like that. Those people in our orbit, Steve, we have a very heavy gravitational field around us. Yeah, that would mean that we're the sun or something, you know? That's right. We're a Jupiter-sized podcast. (laughs) Now, so you've never seen the movie, and I saw it probably, you know, on um, Showtime or something when I was in eighth grade, so I have no idea. I just read it because I was curious if anybody listening feels the same way. That's all. All right, cool. Well, I guess we'll find out. Email us at therushcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of Chris's email. And Chris, thank you for chiming in, and thanks for listening. We appreciate it. So, Jar, my favorite headache, Getty Lee's first and so far only solo record. 
I like that so far. So far, because you know Getty's going to do a solo record. He has to, right? I hope so. I hope so, too. Released November 14th, 2000, just a few weeks ago. It celebrated its 21st birthday. It can drink now. (laughs) And have a whole different other kind of headache. (laughs) Exactly. Peaked at number 52 on the Billboard 200. That's pretty good. It is really good. Right? Yeah. The main contributor to this album was Geddy Lee's old friend, Ben Mink. Yeah. He played guitars, violins, violas, string arrangements. And of course, Ben Mink is best known for working with Rush on Losing It. Mm-hmm. And he was also in a band called FM. Right. And he also did a lot of work with KD Lang, which I was not aware of. I wasn't aware of that either. He co-wrote one of her biggest songs. That's pretty cool. It is very cool. Very cool. And on drums on this record, Matt Cameron yep. was the drummer for Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, and most recently with Pearl Jam since 1988. Yeah. And there was one other drummer, right? On one other song, on one of the songs. Correct. We'll get to that later. I, don't, I have his name written down, but it's elsewhere. But for the most part, it was Matt. For the most part, it was Matt. Care to guess the singles, Jerry? I always do this to you. Oh. The singles on My Favorite Headache. This is a tough one. This is an absolute tough one. I think you can do it, though. I'm going to go with the title track, My Favorite Headache. Correct. That's number one. Okay. Okay. Hold on. If you get them in order, I'm going to be really impressed. Oh, in order. Um, Working at Perfect. No. <sighs> Your perfection is over. <laughs> it was over a long time ago, Steve. <laughs> what, um, what are they? Grace to Grace was single oh. number two, and Home on the Strange was single number three. I would not have guess those two no producer david leonard did a fantabulous job <laughs> yes he did and the album art jared surprisingly was not done by hugh syme i was surprised about that too i was very surprised at that the design was done by steve michaelin and fuel design in toronto so first of all before we discuss why hugh syme wasn't involved what do you think of the album cover i like the album cover it's a little abstract i really didn't know what it was until i read what getty said it was it represented oh okay what did getty say you know half of the person is like underground mm-hmm. and half of them is above ground so that's supposed to be like a representation of like the my favorite headache thing like stuck between two different worlds right i believe is what he said okay and what about the head which is kind of just a, an outline of a head with you can see a line going from the head's eyes Across the horizon. What do you think that is? Uh, I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> X-ray specs, maybe? I don't know what it could be. So why do you think he didn't ask Hugh Syme to do the album cover? That's curious for me. I, yeah, I didn't read anything about that. So I'm assuming he was just trying to make it as non-Rush related as possible, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just to try and distance this record from the Rush universe a little bit and make it his own. Right, make it his own. Because I'm sure he didn't want any comparisons. Right, right. To Rush or leaning on any Rush-like things, so. All right, cool. Makes sense to me. So why don't we get into it, Jar? This is a really, really good album, and I think we should get started. Yeah, it's a fantastic album. I haven't listened to this album in a long time. I probably listened to it when it came out, but it was almost like, it was almost like Vapor Trails for me, listening to it basically for the first time. And it is a great album. Well, you know what? When this came out, we were all under the impression that we may never hear another Rush album again. Right. 
And I remember when it came out, I was so excited. And I listened to this a lot back in 2000. But admittedly, I hadn't listened to it in quite a while until I prepared for this podcast. And I'm so glad that I revisited it because it's, it's amazing. It is. It's a fantastic album. All right, let's get it started. Track one is my favorite heading. Once you start running, you keep on running till your muscles start to break down. Once you start falling, you keep on falling till you get the cold, cold ground. I watch TV. What do you want from me? I watch TV. What do you want from me? Jarb got quotes, as I always do. Oh, yeah, let's hear them. This one's from Getty in Bass Player Magazine, January 2001. I found this on Rush Vault. Ben Mink's dad was telling him a story about something that happened to his mother, and he said in his Polish accent, and right away she gets the favorite headache. You're not going to do the accent, Steve? No, I'm not going to do the accent. I can't do a Polish accent. <laughs> Once I stopped laughing, I realized what a great phrase that is, and I became determined to use it. It represents my sort of reluctant relationship with making music. I love it passionately, but it drives me crazy, because once I get into a project, I'm completely consumed by it. And I have a quote from Ben Mink. This piece showcases Getty's use of multiple bass tracks and bass chords. The most aggressive guitar sound on the record is not a guitar. It's a bass playing these really outrageous chords. That is from the My Favorite Headache video press release, which we watched before completing this podcast. We did, we did. Which was very cool. I hadn't seen that before. No, evidently it's, a, it's actually a longer, that one was like 15 minutes, right? I think there's a longer version of it. I'm not sure if it came out with a certain like presence of the, of the album itself or was released somebody, but I think there's a longer version of it too. I didn't watch that window. So before we get into the music, what about the phrase, my favorite headache? I think that this podcast is my favorite headache. What do you think, Jeff? <laughs> Are you trying to say that, <laughs> see, the way that Getty described the term, he's using it to be um, something that you love, but is just kind of a big pain in the butt, right? And that's how you're using it. Is that what you're trying to say? Yes, Steve? exactly. <laughs> I love doing it, but it takes a lot of work. It does. It takes a lot of work, especially on your end. We can <laughs> peel back the, the curtain, as you say. It's not your favorite headache. No, I have so many headaches. I have normal headaches all the time, Steve, so yes. I can't even have a favorite headache. Um, I think it's a great title for an album in general, and I think the song is really, really good. And I think that the the lyrics really bring out what the idea of you know your favorite headache is. I think it's, I think they're great. 
Oh yeah. We, we can get into the lyrics, but I, I have to say the beginning of this song, the bass at the beginning of this song is so, so influenced to me by Les Claypool. Dude, can you read this piece of paper? I'm going to hold up to the screen. So what does it see? say? It says, you can't see that. It says very primacy opening. Oh, totally. That's what I wrote down. Absolutely. Right. Primus opened for Rush for how many years prior to this? Probably five or six years at least, right? Sure. And Getty hanging out with Les Claypool all the time had to pick up something from Les. Had to. He had to. Yeah, it's definitely the uh, very, like I said, very primacy opening. It's fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. And I don't think any other song on the record sounds primacy, but this one really, really does. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So we agree. We do agree. And I think um, overall, it's also a very dynamic song, right? Oh, yes. A lot of different ranges in this song. Yeah. And it's the heaviest song on the record, I think. A couple of songs are close. So shall we get into the lyrics? Yeah. You know, before we get into the lyrics, I think we should talk a little bit about Rush's lyrics. Oh, right. That, that's true. That's true. Go ahead. Because, you know, sometimes with bands, not sometimes with bands, almost always, it always seems to be one person who is like outsized compared to the other people. And even in a band like Rush with three outsized musicians, people seem, at least in, in our orbit, right, Steve? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Seem to uh, talk a lot about Neil because he's the lyricist or whatever, and you can get a certain feeling from that. And I think that Getty did a great job, not just stepping out of that shadow, if he even felt like he was in a shadow, but casting his own shadow. These, I think these lyrics are really good. Yeah. I mean, he learned so much from Neil. I mean, he wants to step out of Neil's shadow, but he clearly learned a lot right. from Neil over the years. I mean, the difference between the lyrics on Rush's debut album and these, it's night and day. Absolutely. These are really, really well-crafted lyrics. Yeah. And I also read somewhere, I forgot to write it down, um, where someone asked him if there was a difference between writing your own lyrics and trying to come up with melodies for someone else's lyrics. And yes. he said that he had a lot more freedom to work on the lyrics while he was working on the melody and mm-hmm. vice versa. And I think that shows in this because there isn't a, a clumsy yes clumsily sung phrase on any song in this entire disc yeah and that's a lot of the criticism you hear about rush is that it seems like the lyrics are kind of crammed into the song sometimes yeah and it doesn't flow and here not that these songs are better than rush songs per se it's just there's a flow to the lyrics that isn't there in a lot of Rush songs. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. And because Getty crafted the lyrics and the music at the same time, and he was the one crafting the music, he was the one crafting the lyrics, didn't have to fit Neil's lyrics into his music, that creates that flow. Yep, it's true. Yep. So one man standing on the plains of Abraham, watching the damaged sunrise, one man standing near the edge of a quiet breakdown. Go for it, Jer. <laughs> well, I had to look up. I, I always thought maybe the Plains of Abraham was a biblical reference, right? It sounds very biblical. But evidently, it's a park in Quebec City. Oh, okay. So if this song, as Getty said, is about his tension with 
his love of music. You know, he has to be either on one side of creating something or the other side. And the one side mm-hmm. of creating something is not doing anything about it. And the other side of creating something is just going for it a hundred miles an hour. Right. That's what it seems like this whole song is about is the tension between those two ideas. Right. So he's standing in this park watching a damaged sunrise and he's near the edge of a quiet breakdown. It's almost like he's deciding, am I going to make this album? Do you know what I mean? Right. Am I going to take the time and actually jump into the water and make this album? Now, it's interesting. I found a quote about this song. It's from an interview that I found on Power Windows website from Jam Showbiz. It was an interview done by Paul Canton, and he doesn't mention that park. He said he needed a destination or starting point that was very evocative. And I always thought that phrase was very evocative. Something about the biblical reference takes you back to something fundamental about being at the beginning of everything. There you go. That is a little black comedy, that song. It's probably the least autobiographical song, and in some ways, it is the most. It's not about me. It's about a character. So it's kind of that mini drama. Hmm. Well, that blows everything I was going to say <laughs> about this song out of the water. But he also says, I think that the phrase itself is very transferable to describe one's relationship to a lot of different things. Okay. I have to recalibrate now everything I was going to say. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I felt the same way about the Plains of Abraham. I'm like, it has to be a biblical reference, but I couldn't find anything that said it was. Right. So I think that the only biblical reference is the name Abraham, I guess, right? Right. And evidently that's because it was a real person. Right. There was a, there was a battle fought at this piece of land during the French and Indian War. And the, I guess the guy leading the charge, his name was Abraham. So it became known as the Plains of Abraham. But I think like we do when we talk about Neil's lyrics, we're just going to ignore what Getty says the song is about. <laughs> <laughs> And talk about what we think the song is about. Well, sure. I watch the sea. It helps to anchor me. What do you think of that phrase, Jer? I like that. I do like that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's clever. And then we get to the, it's another verse, right? Once you start hiding, you keep on hiding till your paranoia calms down. Once you start watching, you keep on watching till you're tied up and you're spellbound. So if this is a character who is, you know, making some kind of decision. He's either, you know, like I said, in or out, right? Mm. Either not doing something or doing something. I like that because once you're, once you're, if he's nervous about or has some kind of paranoia about starting this new thing in life, he's going to hide from it. But once he comes out of hiding, then he's just off to the races, right? He's tied up and spellbound in his project. I agree. I agree. So this next part is very Rush-like this bridge Mm. just between the ice ages. Anyway, I want to talk, but I haven't got too much to say. I don't mean to be so nihilistic. Forgive me if I seem to be too realistic. Mm. And this bridge reminds me of test for echo for some reason, like it should be on test for echo, which was the album that came out right before this. Right. There there are a couple other songs that I think, would fit in well or seem inspired by other Rush albums. So that's Mm -hmm. an interesting point. Yeah. I don't know why I, I I meant to look up what the word nihilistic meant and I didn't do it. You're going to tell me though, because you're smart. Uh, Yeah. Nihilism is just a, a a philosophy, man, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it wrong, (laughs) but where, you know, there is no meaning in life basically. Oh, okay. 
just between the ice ages anyway. Right. There's, there's no meaning to life whatsoever. People ascribe meaning to it, but there is no meaning to it. Okay. But it's funny that he says, I don't mean to be so nihilistic. Forgive me if I seem to be too realistic. Nihilists usually say that they're being realistic. It's like people who are uh, pessimists usually describe themselves as realists when everyone around them is just like, you're being a pessimist. You're like, no, I'm just seeing reality for what it is. And That's what I do. <laughs> I always call myself a realist, but I'm really a pessimist. I really am. Right. You might be a nihilist as well. Maybe. Now that I know what it means, I can be one. <laughs> Definitions are the key, Steve. Then we get to the next verse. Once you start running, you keep on running till your muscles start to break down. Once you start falling, you keep on falling till you hit the cold, cold ground. Yeah, I think this just extends the metaphor of doing this thing until you can't do it anymore. Like he said, you know, you have to give it everything he gets so engrossed in his work that he just starts running and the next thing you know he's falling down and he can't even stop falling right mm -hmm. until you're just dead on the ground now this next part i think is interesting i watch tv what do you want from me <laughs> like almost like he's just wasting his time right i think so that's what i think that at this at this point or maybe just in, it's another aspect of the idea is that he has some kind of sedentary lifestyle. He's like, I'm just watching TV. What do you want from me? I'm not going to do this thing. Right. Just let me sit here and, and watch the Kardashians, for God's sakes. <laughs> uh, and then we get another verse later. We get the chorus again, and we get another verse. Once you start hiding, you keep on hiding till you feel you're safe and sound. Once you start watching, you keep on watching till you're tied up and you're spellbound. Is that in reference to the TV watching again, you think? Oh, maybe. I mean, he has said that earlier, right? Right. So it's entirely possible. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Watching could be watching TV. I just like the contrast between watching the sea and watching TV. Yeah. It's very cool. And at the end it says, I watched the sea. I saw it on TV. <laughs> yes. So he's watching TV, but he's watching the sea. The thing that earlier in the song anchored him in life, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Made him feel safe and secure. And then the watching TV makes him apathetic. But at the end, he's watching the sea on TV. So what, is, what does that mean for his life, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I like it, though. I love it. I thought that this song really would be at home on Vapor Trails. I know you said that you were thinking that. Oh, okay. Just for Echo. Just, the, just kind of the aggressiveness of the opening. Well, I think it makes sense that it reminds me of test for echo and it reminds you of vapor trails this album came out in between both of those so it just makes sense right yeah one foot in each world so we like track one jerry what do you think we'll think of track two well i know what i think of track two all right well here it is the present tense Yeah. 
Jared, I've got another quote from Getty from the same Jam Showbiz interview. When you forget what you've gone through, when you forget what has made you what you are, your past guides you. Your past is what guides you and what forms you. But it can't help you become what you want to become unless you accept what today is. That song is very much about accepting existence, accepting reality, and stepping outside the distractions. Humans love to distract themselves, and that way they don't have to deal with the unanswerable questions. That song is saying it's all about existential angst. I have it, and I'm sure there are other people out there who have it. We can't run from it. It is a healthy part of self-awareness. Your thoughts? I agree with that. (laughs) There are a lot of songs. (laughs) There are more than a few songs on this album that I wrote down that he seems very uncertain about things and that he seems like he's not comfortable with the way things are, the way reality is. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that obviously that nails it perfectly. You know what I mean? There's a certain amount of angst in some of these songs where there is no answer. I'm thinking specifically, I guess, of the angel share. Right. We'll get to that when we talk about it. But that's what I got from this song too. It's just about trying to find out the, the space that's here now as opposed to the, the things that were and the things that are to come. That's all. What would you say the theme of this record is is it getty's relentless drive for perfection it might be i think i think all of these things if you're going to use the my favorite headache as the you know the the album title all of these different things are headaches for him right not necessarily bad headaches but but headaches nonetheless headaches nonetheless things he has to grapple with do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um whether it's living in the moment or, you know, trying to be perfect or, you know, runaway train. We'll talk about what that might be about the angel share too, which is, you know, a little critique of religion. It's all of these things. And like they said, there's some kind of uncertainty in a lot of these songs. Mm-hmm. Ben Mink said something interesting in the, uh, the video that went along with the album. He said, this is Getty's voice. And I thought that was just a great quote. You know, all these years, Getty's been singing with Neil's voice, so to speak. And now this is his voice, truly. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Did he mean this song or the album? He just meant, in general, the album, yeah. Yeah. But And this song, too, of course. It's Getty's voice. Yeah. And in a very Rush-like fashion, it started with the chorus. Right. Right? Living in the present tense. When you lose the past and the future makes no sense, you're living in the present tense. Yeah, so there's an uncertainty right there, right? The future makes no sense. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it hasn't happened yet. But a lot of people, perhaps you, Steve, I'm not sure. Maybe. Have a lot of of confusion about what the future holds. Right. Right? It makes no sense to to think sometimes about what's going to happen 10 years from now. It just doesn't make any sense. You can't make sense of something that hasn't happened yet, obviously. But that's where a lot of anxiety from comes from, is worrying about what's going to happen next, right? But, you know, it, the interesting thing is Getty has such godlike status for us that you don't think that Getty has the same kind of fears that mere mortals like we do, you know? But he does. But he does, right. But the difference is that he has, you know, the some kind of, of iron will to be able to put them aside at least for a little while and do the work he wants to do. He's very vulnerable on this record, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Right? 
That's a good word. That is a great word for it. Crawling out secure and confident, imbued with innocence, ready for the world. Suddenly, the view was more intense, living in a different kind of world. I like to think that that's just a description of people being born. Okay. When you come into the world, you know, you're crawling out, so to speak, secure and confident as a little baby, I guess. Mm-hmm. You don't really have much in your head. But then once, you know, life starts happening to you, <laughs> the world, which kind of sounds like the world. Yeah. I always thought he was saying the world until I read the lyrics just a few days ago. Right. But that's, that's a way different word. The world. The world. I like it though. Oh, I like it too. It really, it really shows the, the chaotic nature of right. how life can be sometimes. I mean, the world is chaotic enough, but the world. The world. That's chaotic. The world of the world. <laughs> and suddenly the view was more intense living in a different kind of world. I just think at some point, you know, you lose your innocence of, of easy times. Mm-hmm. I guess when you're a kid, it's easy to say when you're a kid. A lot of kids, however, lose their innocence, unfortunately, very, very early in life. But a lot of kids, you know, they don't really realize what life is going to be like until they, they leave college even mm-hmm. and, you know, start living on their own. And that's when you really realize the kind of things that are going to uh, hold you back in your life, right? When mm-hmm. you have to do things on your own for the first time. You're living, living in the present tense. There's nothing to blame, no victim of consequence. You're living in the present tense. I love this. This is, this is a great, for me, a great turn of phrase. Because it doesn't make it a lot of sense many times to blame the things that have happened to you for the way that you are acting or the way you are right now, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's easy to do, and it may even be true, but a lot of times it's just not going to help you to dwell on those things, right? I mean, could this song just simply be about just living in the moment in its simplest form? That's what it's about? Yeah, I think so. But it's also, to me, about how difficult it can be with all of the things that are around you, right? You're, you're no victim of consequence, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's nothing to blame because that's what you want to do. I don't know if you, have you ever tried to meditate, Steve? Never. Oh, God, I have no patience for that. <laughs> I, I've always, you know, dabbled. I've always been more interested in Buddhism than anything. Just I, I like learning about things. But it is one of the hardest things you could do to just to sit quietly for any amount of time. It's yeah. like your brain rebels. Your brain is your worst enemy. Our brains hate us, Steve. I don't know if you've noticed this. <laughs> they hate being us. You just came up with a great idea for a future podcast for us, Jerry. We could just do a meditation podcast and just be silent. Oh, that is the greatest idea ever. Isn't it? We'll just ring a bell at the beginning. Yeah. And then just say nothing for 45 minutes. I just like it because it's easy to edit. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have to be in the room. Uh, this next phrase speaks to the difficulty you were just talking about. Something you said, it made me step outside the moment. Eyes pan right and left around my world. I love this phrase. Yeah. It's just the, the sometimes, you know, you get snapped back to the present by what people say. Right. Well, it could be really anything. I mean, you, it doesn't have to be some huge revelation. It could be at a concert where you're just enjoying the moment. It could be at a dinner. It could be at your, your kid's recital. Do you know what I mean? Every once in a while, you snap into the moment. It doesn't stay very long, but. And I love the fact that Getty doesn't repeat much. I mean, he repeats the verse 
Open yourself up to the possibility, aware of some reality outside your world. Yeah. That's great too. It is great. It's a very profound song. Yeah. I mean, Getty's killing it here. Yeah. And these, these next three verses. I'm going to call it the bridge and I just love how it builds. Yes. It's so great. Right. And the lyrics definitely build upon each other too. Yes. Yes. In a silent universe, the moment can be so real. You almost can't stand it. In a distant universe, distracted from ourselves, you can't help but wonder. In a crowded universe, when the talking turns to noise, you almost start laughing. Yeah. Wow. So these three things seem to me like the perils with trying to be in the moment, right? Yeah. If you're in the moment and things are too, like if you're meditating and things are too silent, it's so hard. You can barely even stand it, like he says, right? Yeah. But then when you're distracted from ourselves for a moment, if you stop thinking, if you're distracted, like I said, if you're in some kind of great moment with someone else, you can't help but wonder, why isn't it like this all the time? Why can't I be in the groove? Why can't I be in this pocket all the time? But then when it gets too much and everything just turns to noise, you know, you start laughing because this is why, because there's just too much stuff around me yeah. vying for my attention. It really is. It's a very profound little song. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And I love the fact that it's Getty's voice. These are lyrics that Neil wouldn't have written. Right. And that's what makes it so great. Yes, I agree. Any other thoughts uh, on the music? Any other part of the song uh, outside of the lyrics, Jar? These songs, all of the songs, are just very well-constructed songs. Yes. You know what I mean? And the thing that I like about them is it isn't, it's sort of like when we talked about the Hammersmith Odeon show, mm-hmm. where he was remastering it or remixing it or whatever. Right. And he didn't put himself front and center because he's a team player. He, he could have, it could have just been the bass show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But he definitely, there's definitely room for the whole song to just not be about him. He's a great songwriter. Great songwriter. And the thing I love about these songs, and I don't know if you noticed this, but I was listening to this over and over again over the past week. And I'd be in the car, and let's say I have the present tense on, and then I have to get out of the car to go shopping or whatever it is I'm doing. The songs just stick in your head. Whatever song I listened to last, that's the one that's just playing over and over in my head yeah. until I pick it up again. That's the melody. It's, they're catchy. Everything about them is very catchy. All of them. And I think it's a little bit different from a lot of Rush songs. Not that the Rush songs aren't great, but they don't stick in your head, some of them. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. I couldn't find a lot of stuff about you know, the headspace he was in when he wrote these songs. Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of the uncertainty in the lyrics probably had a lot to do with the uncertainty in Rush at the time. Yeah. He didn't know what his life was going to be for the next 20, 30 years because Rush may not exist. He's got to forge his own path, right? Yeah, and and of course, the just the recognition of uncertainty after Neil's tragedies. Right. You know, something something like that definitely reminds you about how things can turn on a dime in your life. Yeah. It makes you think about, about your life. Yeah. And reflect on all the, the good things that you have and how those could be torn away at a moment. Yep. 
All right, let's move on to track three, Jar. We're loving this so far. Let's see what we think of track three, Window to the World. Give me that window to have a quote for this one jer but there are a lot of mid-tempo songs on this record and what do you think of this one i love it i don't mind these mid-tempo songs i don't mind the ballady songs you don't like the rush songs that are ballady but these these you're okay with i like them too i'm just surprised that you do i am surprised i like them too i really thought going into this i really thought you weren't going to like this record at all i really did i well i I have to tell you, I was nervous going into it because I hadn't listened to it in a long time. Oh. And I surprised myself by how much I like it. Getty said in the documentary we watched, he didn't want to do fast licks on this record. And I think this is an example of Getty not doing fast licks. And it's still a great song. Yep. Focusing on the songwriting. I like this song because it has, uh, for me, like a, like a psychedelic feel to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Even with like the repeated, repeated lyrics mm-hmm. throughout the song and even the idea of the song, the window to the world, it just seems to be a very daydreamy kind of song to me. Right. And he also said he used a lot of multi-track bass chords on this record. And I think that's what you're hearing here instead of the guitar in a lot of places. Did you notice that or no? I did, but I, I, I don't have the kind of knowledge to, you know, pick that apart really to say like, oh, he's obviously multi-tracking his base. I know. I, I also read that he, that they did that on this album, but I couldn't say like, that's the reason why this song sounds the way it does is because of, you know, multi-track bass. Yeah. I'm not sure either. I I'm, I'm thinking that this is one of the songs that, that the multi-track bass chords are appearing on, but um, maybe the musician listeners we have can chime in on this and give us some more insight. Yeah. I do love the guitar in this song though, but again, it's a very sixties kind of, psychedelic feel to me yeah yeah it's very cool i've gone flying trying to reach you you've been hiding riding me to a state like this now does flying revert to traveling for for some reason this song getty's traveling in this song to me you agree i mean i think so this is one of the songs i really couldn't get a good grip of what it's about to me it was more just about the feeling of the song it does definitely feels like a traveling song it definitely feels like a little mystical song. You know what I mean? I don't think that mm-hmm. the, um, the lyrics are as concrete or can be interpreted as concrete as some of the other songs. Now, I know Getty likes to travel the world with his family mm-hmm. in between Rush records, and I'm sure now that, that he's semi-retired. You know, I've read a lot about his trips to Australia or wherever it is he's going, and I just, to me, this is about him traveling with his family. Give me that window to the world. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Okay. A little more than this, a little less than that. You've got magic in your hands. What do you think of that phrase, Jar? I like it. I'm not sure what it means, <laughs> but I like it. I don't know what it means either. I was hoping you would help. 
I guess it's just like, you know, choosing the things that work and, and discarding the things that don't, especially when you're traveling, you know what I mean? You're usually trying to do the things that you want to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or it could just be a little more than this, a little more than that is, I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Now, there's not many lyrics here. Right. But this last one, I think is a message to whoever his traveling partner is, possibly his wife. You've conspired, inspired me to find a place like this. I'm just picturing him on a beach on some island in the Pacific with his wife who conspired to bring him to this place and he's loving it. What do you think of that? Um, I like that interpretation. I have no, I have no interpretation. I'll tell you, I was really, I was really at a, at a, at a loss when it came to the song. I was just enjoying the vibe. Yeah. It's very cool. It's dreamy. You know, I, yeah. It's a lot, well, it's not a lot like YYZ, but it's a lot like YYZ in the fact that you're, you're flying. I feel like I'm flying when I hear this song. Yes, I agree. Okay. All right, cool. Three down, eight to go. Working It Perfect is number four. This is one of those songs that sticks in my head after I hear it. What do you think? Yeah, I love this song. I love it. And this song I definitely read has multiple baseline tracks on it. Okay. I think I read also that the guitar riff on this song isn't actually a guitar. It's a bass. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And what I love about it right off the bat is the title of the song is Working at Perfect. And he spells perfect wrong on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's humor coming through. Yes. P-E-R-F-E-K-T. Right. Perfect. He's still working on spelling perfect correctly. I can only imagine how many people pointed that out. Like, oh, hey, perfect is spelled incorrectly. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be. <laughs> probably, probably had to put a note on, on the thing. Like, yeah, it's, it's spelled incorrectly. I'm perfect. Let's go through the lyrics first, Jar, because I think they're great. Yeah. Draw a line strong and clear. Make it bend to your will. All the lines in a face, so hard to make stand still. Your thoughts? I Well, I think this whole song really shows that Getty has, you know, a relationship with perfection. Because we always hear about Rush mm -hmm. being perfectionists. But it's very hard to be a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And perfectionists never think that they're perfect enough. Even though the rest of us think they're fine. 
Well, just like we were talking about with different stages, the fact that Getty, Alex, and Neil thought that concert was flawed in any way is crazy to me. Right. They're perfectionists. They're perfectionists. And in this song, he's trying to almost convince himself that perhaps you don't need to be perfect. I mean, there's, there's a level below absolute perfection, which is still very good. Till the flaws disappear, till what's wrong disappears, till all that's wrong will disappear. Yeah, which is impossible. Right. And I love the chorus, working it perfect, got me down on my knees. And this line is the best one for me. Success to failure, just a matter of degrees. So a tiny little mistake that you or I can't hear probably drives Getty crazy. Probably, yeah. Just a matter of degrees. Right, and working at perfect got me down on my knees. He's in pain, right. you know what I mean? He's been beaten to his knees. And there's that phrase, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. And I think that's what he's reckoning with in this song, is that perfection is not really attainable, and striving for it can just make you insane. And it's another headache, right? Right. I was just going to say, it ties in perfectly with my favorite headache. Right. Getty's relentless pursuit of perfection. Yep. Which is almost impossible to attain, really. Right. It's admirable, but at some point you have to realize that it's just not going to happen and you have to, you know, give it up. I guess I can't remember. I've, I mean, I've said this before on the podcast and I can't remember who it's attributed to, but someone said, you know, no art is ever finished. It's only abandoned. Yep. Because it's impossible to get to that, you know, the complete realization of your vision. Right. I wouldn't know exactly, but that's what I've been told. <laughs> I mean, no one, no one is perfect, but Getty comes way closer than most. Right. And especially writing a song about how imperfect he is, even while he's trying to strive for perfection. Yep. All the colors of the day have somehow disappeared. All the colors of the universe closer than they appear. So perfection is closer than Getty thinks it is. Well, I interpret that to mean that the colors of the day have somehow disappeared. Like he's ignoring everything around him. Okay. He's in his own world. And when he is really focusing on that one thing he wants to make perfect, that's when he sees the colors of the universe. Do you know what I mean? He gets as close to his idea of perfection as he can by ignoring all of the stuff around him. So instead of focusing on the perfection of the day, he's, he's got his mind on the universe. Or just the fact that he, like he said like in the quote earlier, he has a love-hate relationship with music because once he starts, he just has to try to make it perfect. Right. And when it seems that people, artists are, are chasing that moment, right? When they lose their sense of, I don't want to say reality, but they, they lose their sense of inhibition and they become one with what they're doing. It's athletes mm -hmm. do it too, right? They talk about like this, this moment where they're just not swinging the bat, they're just part of the bat. Or they're not playing... They're not trying to play a solo. They're just soloing. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to sing. You're singing. You're not trying to paint. You're painting. That's kind of what I'm getting from this, is that when he's in that state, that's when he really gets the inspiration to do his best work. Now, the, the next part, I just can't even believe Getty's saying this. Nothing is perfect. Certainly not me. <laughs> Success to failure is just a matter of degrees. Just the fact that Getty is that unconfident in his, in his work you know, maybe he can't load the dishwasher. You know what I mean? Maybe he just loads it wrong every time. He's like, God 
Uh, I can't believe I did that wrong again. Nothing's getting clean. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Uh, or this doesn't have to be musical either, right? Yeah, I guess Getty's just not good at other things that we're not aware of. <laughs> he can't fold a, a fitted sheet. Maybe drives him nuts. <laughs> But like, it also may not, doesn't necessarily have to be just music that he feels he's not perfect at. It could be a lot of other things too. Right. His personal life. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where he's feeling it the most if he can't get that OCD kind of behavior under control. Mm-hmm. Not that I think he has OCD, but you know, if you are striving for perfection all the time, then when you fall short, you just probably feel like crap. But when it's right, it's right as rain. And when it's right, there is no pain. And when it's right, you start again. Yeah, I think that's what drives a lot of creative people. When something is good, when you can feel the energy and really ride the wave of whatever inspiration you're doing, you try to harness that. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're shooting for the next time. Right. Even if the intervening time has been terrible. You know what I mean? You have to try and always get toward that space of inspiration. Four for four, Jar. Four for four. This album is great. Yep. Let's move on to track five, Runaway Train. Nothing so cruel when malevolence rules. You've got to want it. You've got to want it. There is no defense against pointed arrogance. You've got to want it. You've got to So I have another quote, Jer, from that Power Windows article about Runaway Train. It was originally called Requiem, but I thought that was too heavy for most people to swallow. Mm. So I changed it to Runaway Train because it was the one image that was kind of profoundly existent in the lyrics. The song is about a different kind of self-abuse than one normally associates with that phrase. The song is about victimizing yourself and the concept that you can live in an intolerable environment only with your own permission Hmm. that you have to activate yourself to remove yourself from harm's way. And when you don't, the thing becomes this runaway experience where no good can come of it. And you can only stop it with your own insistence. That is what the song is about. That insistence Hmm. thoughts. No, this is my favorite song on the record. Really? Yeah. Okay. I love this song. I love (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love the chorus. All the choruses on this album are great. Yeah, this one is really, really catchy, this song. It is. Um, and, you know, I wrote down that this song is about the inertia of inaction, which kind of jives with what he said, how you have to actively change the path that you're on. Right. This is similar to a lot of Neil's lyrics in that way, don't you think? Uh, no, how so? Just the, just the fact, you know, the ambition to be the best, you've got to want it. That's true. Well, I think in this song, it means you've got to want the changes that you want in life. Okay. So yeah, I guess I guess in that way, yeah. It, it doesn't seem like it's, you know, to be the best. It's to get out of the way of whatever situation 
terrible situation you are currently in. Okay. You you have to consciously make certain decisions to get out of these thought patterns or places in your life. You've got to want to get out. It isn't it isn't so much to be like, oh, I wish I could stop thinking like this or I wish I could get out of this relationship or whatever. You have to want it really bad because there are other factors at play that are just going to keep you there. Now, this is the song that jumps out at me when we were talking earlier about the lyrics fitting the song and just how the song just flows. Yeah, flows beautifully. This song is just beautiful in that way. He structured the lyrics the way he wanted to sing them, and they fit perfectly with the music. And he did that without having to consider another writer. Neil. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a wonderful song. That's why it's my favorite song. It's very singable. Mm-hmm. It's catchy, but interesting, and it doesn't fall back on you know pop music tropes, at least to me. Fantastic. Fantastic writing, Steve. Yeah, and I love it, and I don't think this could be a Rush song. I really don't. This is a Getty Lee song. Yeah, you know, this is one of the songs where I was listening to it, and I wasn't comparing it to a Rush song. Yeah. That's how standalone it is. It really is. It's a beautiful song. Nothing blooms in a loveless room. You've got to want it. You've got to want it. Yeah. And that, that is just the, the, the refrain. You know what I mean? It's telling the listener that in order to change any of these conditions, who's the fool where apathy rules, you know, nothing so cruel where malevolence rules. There's no defense against pointed arrogance. If you want these things to stop in your life, you've got to actively go and change it. If you don't want it, it remains the same. It's a heart of darkness that wants to play that game. Yeah. If there's no defiance, it remains insane. If it's all compliance, it's a runaway train. Yeah. These situations get out of control in your life. And I, I don't necessarily think it has to be like these huge, emotionally wrought experiences. It could be anything you want to do, right? Mm-hmm. That you're stuck in some kind of rut. Like I said, you know, there's inertia. Just not doing anything is its own kind of inertia. Yeah. You need something else to come along and knock you out of your path. And again, I, I feel like this ties in with Getty's pursuit of perfection from some of the other songs we've heard. Do you think? I think so, yeah. You're learning a lot about Getty. Oh, yeah. On this album. If you don't want it, it remains the same. It's a heart of darkness that wants to play that game. It can be surprising when you lose the shame. And the sun starts rising, another day to tame. Yeah, that's key, I think, to understanding this song. It can be surprising when you lose the shame. Very cool. Yeah, because that's the kind of thing that will keep people trapped in, could be anything, bad relationships or bad situations. The feeling of shame that you have, of admitting maybe that you need help, or the, the fact that you know, you've done these things that you don't, wouldn't normally do. And you really have to dig yourself out of that. And if you can get yourself away from that feeling, then you can, you know, see the sun start to rise. It really is another very, <laughs> another deep song. Very deep song. If your heart is aching, just remove the shame. You've got to want it. Give your soul a shaking and refuse the blame. You've got to want it. Yeah. Refuse the blame. Yeah. Don't let people blame you for things. Don't blame yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to put some of those feelings behind, at least for a little while, so you can 
get on with your life. And a shout out to Ben Mink, the guitar work on this song. Oh yeah. So bright and brilliant to me. And there's also a really interesting little musical break, right? Yeah. Before he sings, if your heart is aching, just remove the shame. It's just a well-constructed song all the way through. Yeah. All the way through. It's so, it, like you said, it's so, everything's so bright. It's so catchy. Mm-hmm. If you can do it, it's a great way to do a song is to have this catchy thing that sticks in your head. And then once you dig a little deeper, you're like, Ooh, this song is about something. <laughs> <laughs> this song that's in my head is about something. Maybe it can stay in my head and help me out a little bit. Another quote I liked from the, the video we watched, Getty said about constructing songs. He said it was like doing my own personal jigsaw puzzle. I loved it. Oh, very cool. I wonder if they make a, my favorite headache jigsaw puzzle. They've made other jigsaw puzzles. I would put that together. All right. I know what I'm getting you for Christmas, Steve. <laughs> Maybe I'll just get a picture of the, of the album cover and cut it up into pieces for you. See if you can put it back together. You know, originally I thought we were going to be able to complete this album in one episode, Jared, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. That is not happening, Steve. There's a lot here to unpack. We're about an hour in and we've got six songs to go. So we got to wrap this up. We have to wrap it up. Great. Loving it so far. I can't wait for part two. I know it's going to be great. You can find us on Twitter. We are at rush Fancast. Instagram. You can find us at the rush cast email, Jerry, the rush cast at gmail.com. Let them know what you think of our meditation podcast idea. <laughs> <laughs> the bass intro and outro that's Lex. My favorite headache. He's amazing. Follow or subscribe. No, I meant the song he played. Oh, I thought you meant he's your favorite. (laughs) Lex is my favorite, but he is not a headache. (laughs) Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. And Jared, give us a great quote to wrap this up. I will. Working at perfect got me down on my knees. Success to failure, just a matter of degrees. Success to failure, just a matter of degrees. Thanks, Jer. See you in part two. See you, Steve.